0: Note from the producer, the following episode contains a conversation about suicide. By the end of the second week, I was asked to, to do this exercise asking me to imagine my father sitting there and basically say that I hated him. And I, I remember thinking to myself, these are Christians who are saying that in order to be cured, I have to hate someone, not love someone. And Christ is all about love. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Don't Repeat This, a podcast where we discuss the topics you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table. I'm Vicki. I'm Gail. And Nate is, um, well, he's busy mourning the passing of John Wick's dog. First dog. <laughs> so, um, Gail, what are we talking about today? We have a guest, right?
2: Yes, we do. And I'm very excited to get to this story and get into introducing our guests. But first, I just wanted to say, Vicki, I know you and uh, Mike together last night watched um, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. And I know Nate and I had watched that, and we had also both previously watched the other movie on Gay Conflict. Gay Conversion Therapy, which is our topic for the day. This is what we'll be talking about on our podcast. But you had, uh, we had also watched Boy Erased. And so you had a chance to watch both. So did we. What did you think as you were watching it? Did you have any thoughts, things that popped out?
1: I really enjoyed the movie. Um, I thought it was really relatable. I felt like the story, um, you know, it, it was heartbreaking. Obviously, there's a lot of things that were shocking and um, very quite honestly, disturbing for me, but, um, I thought that they, it was presented in a way where it really made you feel like empathetic towards the main character. Um, and for Mike and I, that was our first experience seeing, um, any sort of depiction of conversion therapy. We'd heard about it before. Um, but, you know, coming from a Catholic background, it's not something that we're really that familiar with. I don't know, um, of anyone in my own life who has experienced it. And so um, I, thought, I thought the movie um, did a pretty good job um, as an introduction to the subject.
2: Yeah, I thought so, too. I mean, I don't have any direct personal experience either going through that or knowing anyone I who went through it, but I guess the topic for me today was really one that I wanted to get into and was interested in um, because I was a youth pastor in an evangelical church where um, I don't know of a camp we sent any kids off to, but I do know that this was a topic that was really important. Uh, my daughter also Uh, came out to me and uh, one of her first questions to me was, Mom, am I going to hell? And I I remember just feeling like so, stunned that that was the first thing she said after telling me that and I was like, I've never said she's going to hell. Uh, like I've never ex- like given that view right. and it sort of made me think of like how some of our messages are, are caught and not taught per se. And like I as a youth leader in my church uh, for many years saw a lot of kids who were closeted, who were scared if they came out to their parents they might get kicked out of their homes, who were dealing with depression, who are you know just going through a lot internally. And actually our guest today um, it ties into this whole story because I met him when I was a youth leader. Um, I I just felt like this topic was one that we needed to address, and our church was non-affirming. They they believed homosexuality was a sin, and uh, I was looking for someone who wasn't straight who was willing to address this topic, and in a way where my church would allow me to bring him in, uh, would allow me to bring someone in who could address this. And my goal, my main goal at the time, because I wasn't affirming, Uh, At that point, thankfully, I did become affirming before even my daughter came out to me, which is I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for timing and things, um, but I still the damage she grew up in an evangelical church, I saw that. Um, But Brian, when I I invited him to come in, uh, I really was hoping, because I knew he had a position at the time, and we'll get into his own journey, and I'm looking forward to him sharing that, but at the time he had a position my church could allow him to, uh, or accepted him uh, to come in and give because he he wasn't affirming at the time and he was, but I knew he would present uh, my youth with an example or his own life story and put a face to the idea that this is not an easy thing to grow up gay in a church and to to teach my kids empathy, um, but. You know, we're specifically zoning in today on the topic of conversion therapy. And I know for Brian, um, I'll just start off and introduce you, and you can explain, you know, what I've seen you uh, speak out on on, when it comes to this topic. But welcome to our show, Brian. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm not even sure where to begin with your story. And how do we how would you like to intro into us and, and introduce yourself into the world of first of all? Okay, here's my question. How many evangelical churches did you go around and were you asked to share your story in? Because I know you were a popular sought-after speaker
0: um, at yeah, the time. I I don't know how many total I did. I know that in my busiest year, I had uh, 80 speaking engagements. So wow. uh, that was like more than once a week, I was somewhere sharing my story. Wow. Um, and that that went on to, you know, I ended up doing documentaries on television. You can actually, um, I cringe now knowing this is forever on the internet, but if you go to the National Film Board, you can see the documentary that they did on me uh, as, um, called The Cure for Love. Um I was on um the the Strombo show I was interviewed you know nationally on news programs um and uh won the 35 uh, one of the 35 Christian Leaders under 35 award in Canada and you know was was pretty well known for my story and my stance yeah so
2: So, a lot of evangelical churches wanted to get you in because you took a stand that was palatable enough for it to be okay for you to talk about the topic. I know in my church when I got you in, I had a, a, a leader in my church, a parent, a parent and a leader, um, messaged me a Hoover Dam simulation of it breaking to tell me, like, this was a terrible thing I was doing mm. to bring Like, it was controversial. I'm guessing right. with other churches you came into, there's probably tons of stories with how much, even though you were unaffirming at well, the time. That
0: was the thing. Even as someone who had a very conservative theology at the time and had a very, um, as someone who was... In many ways, the best case scenario that they could look for on this topic, um, I was the poster child for everything they wanted a speaker on this to have. I was still; it was very controversial to even bring me in there and speak. And um, that feeling of begging people, please, just to let me tell my story to it was never. I never even felt at the height of my popularity that. I could go wherever I wanted. I always had to beg and fight to be given a voice there. And I was only allowed to speak because I so fit everything. (laughs) Um, I think the fact that I was married to a woman made it safe for me to speak. And so I had a privilege in a lot of ways where I was able to speak in places where other people couldn't speak. Um, just because of some of the circumstances of my story, I was seen as safer. But even in the midst of that, I was always controversial and never safe.
2: I mean, I know one of the, the things that you did for me as a, as a youth pastor, but it, it helped on my journey was, and I found it quite interesting that you managed to bring it in, and maybe it was in our question and answers at the end. But um, they call them the clobber verses or the verses that, you know, are used to the People grab the Bible and say these texts say it's wrong, and and you went through that with our youth. And I remember you had only one. There was eight verses or nine, or I don't remember how many. But yeah. they were, you were saying at the time back then, you're like, there is one verse in here that I think addresses this topic, and these other seven are taken out of context. And you like, you're like, I've all people have studied this and wanted to say what I wanted to say, and I have and I have unpacked these seven and been like, these actually are twistings of the you right. know the context. And you're like, but there's one at the time that you were like I still hold to. And that that was the reason why you were still unaffirming. And what's interesting, mm-hmm. and I I feel like adding this in and throwing it in because it's an important detail, one of the reasons I became affirming actually was you posting online um a bit of what changed your mind on the whole scenario. Right. Using a text from scripture uh, that ended up really uh, driving home the lens of how Jesus would be and what would be important to God, and the story you gave in the passage and the way you broke it down was eye-opening for me. And just, I just wanted you to know and to say one of the reasons that I've changed my position and I cared. I was at the time evangelical, very. I claimed to a position of inerrancy when it came to scripture, and that was super important to me. That you could use the Bible in order to, you know. Uh, Change my mind on anything. You had to take it from Scripture. So, you taking the time to break that down was so uh, important for me on my journey. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that when you came into churches, the fact that you held to at least that one out of those 8 clover verses was, yeah. you know, probably a part of why you were allowed to,
0: to speak. Right, right. Um. Let me give people. I'll try and do a, a real quick timeline to help them understand cool, where yeah. I'm coming from in my journey. So, um, first thing you need to know about me is that I I grew up like the good Christian kid. <laughs> my my mom was the administrator of a Christian high school that I went to. My dad was on the the board of my church and and had been. You know, it was kind of head run in our family for two generations we were super involved. I grew up fully in the Christian bubble. Um, and all I ever wanted growing up was to make my parents proud and to make God happy. And, and, uh, so I realized that I was gay, um, probably in grade six. And it was one of those things where when you grow up in the Christian bubble, you don't talk about certain things, and so you don't even have language to describe experiences because you're not allowed to talk about those things. Um, I one of my, but sometimes those things you don't talk about are so powerful. Um, I remember growing up having a camp song we used to sing. Uh, when when I went away to camp, and it was all about, you know, being in the army and what army life was like. And we had, like, guys' verses and girls' verses, and my friends and I would innocently sing the girls' verses about, you know, the the guys in the army. And, and to us, we don't even have any context of this. We sing it, but I remember singing that one day while we were <laughs> driving to a Christian service brigade (laughs) at church on a Wednesday night. And my mom driving and like turning around and almost crashing the car. And it was like vein sticking out on her forehead and being like, don't sing that verse. That's about homosexuality. And I had no context for what I just had never seen my mom get so angry about something before and it was like, whoa, whoa. And those are the things that when you start putting the pieces together, go, oh, wait, if I come out, that's how she's going to react.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I, it, so it wasn't until I was in grade six. I mean, I heard people around me using terms like gay and queer. Um, I don't remember my church using those words. They always use the word sodomite. Oh, my um, God. Sorry. And so... Remember looking up the word homosexual in the dictionary because I didn't even know what it meant, and reading it one day at school and being like, oh, that's me, and going, okay. And so, because sodomite was the word that we used growing up in my church, my frame of reference being, you know, 10 or 11 years old was, I am the person that God hates so much that he would nuke an entire city to get rid of. Um, wow. and when you're the good Christian kid from a good Christian family, that kind of self-identification is so devastating to yourself. You will do anything to, to try and get rid of that. Um, and so, when I came to that realization, this was... I mean, if if I had been told I had cancer and was going to die, that would have been a much easier thing for me to face than realizing I was gay. Because if you die, you go to heaven, but if you're gay, you get you burn in hell for eternity, and and the shame to my family would be so powerful. Um, so I spent several years just praying for God to please make this go away. And no matter how hard I prayed, it wouldn't go away. And by the time I got to grade eight, I realized that I had, like, I, I had worked really hard to be the perfect Christian kid. I sang in the choir. I, I helped in the church library. I, like, you know, my whole life revolved around this. And I was considered somewhat of a goody-goody, even in my church. <laughs> I always knew the answer in Sunday school. And I was like, if I don't think there's anything more i can do and if this isn't changing now i don't know that there's anything i can do to change this and this is where a little bit of theology becomes real dangerous cuz i i read a little bit of calvinism at that time and decided that i was double predestined to hell and that's why i was gay and reading romans chapter 1 seemed to reinforce that idea to me so you know grade Eight, I would have been like 12 years old coming to the realization of I'm gay because God made me this way and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'll burn in hell for his glory. Like, Wow. Was such a place of hopelessness. And so I was just like, well, there's nothing I can do about this. So screw God. <laughs> um, but when, when, <laughs> when your whole life revolves around Christianity, there's no place, you know, if I just said, hey, mom and dad, I'm gay and agnostic, not much I can do about it, you know, you will literally die. So, I learned for my own self-preservation to put on a real good act of of being the perfect Christian kid. Even at that point, I was like, screw everything. Um, Grade nine, I had told God, to F off, get out of my life, I want nothing to do with you. <laughs> um, and I was winning spiritual leadership awards at my school, and I was the youngest person ever asked to preach in, in a sermon uh, from the front of my church, and, you know, I had so split my persona. Um, grade 10, the psychic dissonance between who I had to be to survive and who I really was just to, um. Grade nine, I actually came out for the first time. I I told my best friend at that time. He was the only person in my school who was more unpopular than I was. And I thought it would be safe to tell him. And uh, after I told him, he got up and walked out of the room and never spoke to me again. And that was the end of our friendship. Um, And then he gathered a bunch of other kids and they dragged me behind the gymnasium of my Christian high school and kicked the living crap out of me until I told them I was just joking and wasn't really gay. And um, what I learned at that point was that if I ever came out, I would lose my friends, um, lose my family, lose my. I went to a Christian school, I'd be expelled from my school. I, I was very sure at that point that I would be kicked out of my house, I would lose literally everything. And I remember going home with bruises and my mom asking what happened, and I couldn't say anything because if I said why I got beat up, then I was afraid I would be expelled from my school and kicked out of my house. That level of powerlessness, (laughs) you know, extended over long periods of time just really shapes you. And by grade 10, I was actively suicidal. Um, and, and one day I, my parents were off at, at Bible studies or church events and my brothers were playing sports like the good straight people, you know, they were supposed to be. And I decided I was going to kill myself. And, uh, and as I was getting ready to, I filled up the sink with hot water. I had a sharp knife ready and the phone rang. And uh, I went to answer the phone and there was no one there. And so I hung up and I went back and I got ready to kill myself again. And the phone rang again. And I went over and I picked up the phone and, uh, and there was no one there. But that act pulled me back from the moment enough. And it was like, okay, someone's trying to tell me something. And, and I just became aware of what I felt like God's, was God's presence, I was like, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to do this. And I just collapsed on the floor, crying uncontrollably, going like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I heard God say in that moment, trust me. And I was like, okay, this this is it. Like, I don't have any explanation for what's going on. I am so far outside of myself right now, but something seems to be real, so... I didn't have a a, a mountain of faith. I, I had like just this molecule of faith and I'm like, okay, God, whatever. I can always kill myself tomorrow. <laughs> okay, what, you know, one more chance to see what happens here. And uh, stepping back from that very scary brink, God started to bring people into my life who became safe people for me to open up to. Um, I, I, Not long after that started, there was a Christian bookstore in town, and I used to go in and buy uh, read books sitting underneath a table, but not by them. And uh, the owner really should have kicked me out, but instead she uh, took me under her wing and became my best friend, big sister, second mom. And I spent most of my teenage years hanging out in that store. And when I finally got the courage years later to tell her, um, she just looked at me and said, I don't know what to say to you. I am not a counselor. I'm not a pastor. I don't know anything about this. But what I do know is that I love you and God loves you and we're going to go through this together. And that probably saved my life (laughs) Um, to have that one safe person. And as I had her, I could start slowly opening up this web of other people I would talk to. And, uh, around about this time, people were telling me I was called to ministry and I was like, people like me don't become pastors. People like me get burned at the stake by pastors. This is a really bad idea. Um, but God made it really clear that he was calling me to go off to Bible college. And so I went off to Bible college, but I had a deal. I was like, okay, God, I will become a pastor, but you got to make this go away. Like, wave the magic wand of straightness and I need to get married and have a wife and 2.2 children and I'll become a missionary or I'll, you know, do whatever it takes, but I have to be straight in order to follow you. Um, And I went off to Bible college, very conservative Midwestern Bible college, (laughs) and was forced for the first time to live on a dorm floor with 50 other guys which was close to my idea of eternal conscious torment in hell. <laughs> and I, I don't know what it is about Bible college. Um, I think it might be that many sexually repressed people in a small <laughs> space together. But, like, people were naked all of the time, and it just wasn't even a thing. Like, I would go out of my dorm room, and and they'd be, like, playing naked floor hockey in the hallway. And I'm just, like… Why God? This why oh <laughs> I'm trying God. to follow you. Why are you making this so hard? <laughs> um, and, and and I went deeply back into the closet that first semester because I was like, if anyone here finds out, it's just game over. Um, and and I went into the cycle of just self hatred of I if I if I admit, you know. I go through this prayer of, like, dear God, I'll follow you. I'm never going to look at another guy again and think he's attractive. And then I would, and I'd be like, oh, man, he's really cute. Oh, my gosh, if God knew that, he would want to throw up. God does know that! And it was this constant <laughs> sense of shame and, you know, self-recrimination. Um, and then one day, we had this kind of charismatic revival that had been hopping from Bible college to Bible college, and it it came to our school, and there was this whole movement where we were having like special meetings every night, and people were coming forward and confessing sin in front of the whole school and throwing away their, you know, cassettes and CDs or magazines or whatever they thought were worldly and And someone got up in front of the whole school who was a very well-known student on students council and said, like, I struggle with homosexuality and I'm trying to follow Jesus and I don't know what to do. I was sitting in the background. I was like, oh my gosh, I am not the only person. Like, I literally had never met another Christian. I knew there were gay people out there, but I didn't know any Christians who dealt with this. And I was so excited to find someone like me as soon as they finished praying that day, like, he finished speaking. I jumped out of my seat and ran down the aisle to talk to them and then realized there were, like, nine other guys running down the aisle at the same time. And we we all ended up in a pile at the bottom going, okay, we're not alone, um, but what do we do now? And there was a professor visiting from another school who claimed that he had been gay, but God had cured him from homosexuality. And he was like, I think I was visiting today because God wanted me to be here. And so, he formed a support group for us um, that that became a therapy group. And it was all about if we could just deal with these things in our life, then we would be set free from homosexuality. And his mindset was very much along the idea of um, that, Past experiences caused soul ties, which, and generational sins get handed down to you, and these are the things that made you gay. And so the story he told was that I didn't get along with, what made me gay was I didn't get along with my father, I had been sexually molested at some point during my past, and I didn't bond with my peer group of males. And I was like, I'm three for three on this story. (laughs) And he's like, well if you go through therapy and deal with those things then your inherent heterosexuality will emerge and i was just like finally i have an explanation for why this happens that isn't that i'm predestined for wrath and god hates me mm-hmm. <laughs> and so as as horrible as people fear i was in conversion therapy was they'd go why would you do that to yourself it was actually such a better story than the narrative I had internalized previously. Mm -hmm. And having a group of guys where every week we could go together and I could talk about, like, I'm really struggling because it's summertime and everyone's walking around without shirts on. and, And instead of them being like, oh, that's disgusting. I can't believe you'd say that. They were like, oh, me too, brother, I understand you. That safety was so important to me. And that's what made conversion therapy so um, so attractive to me was to have a safe place where I could talk about what I had gone through. Being part of it for a certain period of time, however, you start looking around and you're like, things don't add up. I mean, the narrative I was told fit my story, but I had another friend and, and his dad was his best friend, and he was homecoming king, and he'd never been abused, and he was just as gay as I was, and I was like, why, why is he gay? And we, I had actually been told that he must have been abused as a child and had repressed the memories of it. And we had to uncover his secret memories of abuse in order to set him free of homosexuality. That's so crazy. And I had only been like, I'd taken like one or two counseling classes at this point. But I was like, I know that that's actually unethical and really dangerous because people will actually cause themselves to create false memories of abuse when told they had to have been abused. I was like, whoa, what's going on? I started to question these things and go, this doesn't sit well with me. But at the same time, being part of this group was the only way I could be honest and still be accepted in Christian community. I graduated from that school. I I went on and um, became a youth pastor but this, the, this hiddenness of having to pretend that I was straight and not talk about being gay was, was really damaging to me. And so I kept finding myself in situations where God put me in places where I shared my story, to be honest. And every time I did it, there was this outpouring of attention in the Christian community and people coming around to me and loving me in, in wonderful ways. Even though some people really reacted poorly, I almost lost my first youth pastor job when I talked openly about it. Um, as I, as I went into these things, I got more and more opportunities to speak. And um, it was like no one wanted to talk about this topic, but when I shared, it humanized things and suddenly people would say, well, I've never met a gay person, but now I know Brian and because I like Brian and care about Brian. And so the entire time I was speaking on this, I was doing it because my basic message was Gay people should not get into sexual relationships. They, they have to be single and celibate to follow Jesus and to be accepted in the church. But if they do those things, you should treat them with respect and not treat them horribly. The fact that I had to argue just for that baseline. My whole time there, I was just arguing with maybe we shouldn't beat up gay people. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it's how to express what it feels like to spend your whole life arguing that made, you know, and it could be a controversial thing that you shouldn't have to get beat up as a kid, like that people shouldn't throw you out of your house, that people shouldn't kick you out of their community. Like I I felt like I was asking permission to, um, to exist my whole life. And, as I shared the story, I think there was this hunger for people who knew that those reactions weren't good, but they couldn't make those spaces of saying, we're going to accept gay people, so so we're going to do this. So, my position became that in order to follow Jesus as a gay person, maybe conversion therapy isn't going to work and it's not going to turn you straight. And and I was pretty clear about that before I started working in public ministry, that, that it you know, we can't make you straight. There have been a lot of groups out there that told you you could become straight. And I was like, I don't think that's true. But you you have to be single and celibate uh, or um, or be able to function within a heterosexual married relationship in order to, you know, to, to make this happen, um, to be acceptable in the community. As I taught that and as i gave these viewpoints because i was arguing for that people were like okay he's the safe person to speak on that and i went and continued my training i went and got a master's degree in counseling i started working at an organization that started as a conversion therapy organization that that started switching its position to be more of we support gay people to live out God's plan for their celibacy and, you know, in their lives. Um, So, the position had shifted somewhat, but as I worked there, my goal was I'm just going to try and build churches and youth groups where youth who come out realize that the Christians around them love them, and if they know that, then when we teach them that they just need to be celibate to follow Jesus… They'll have hope and they'll know people like them and they won't end up as suicidal as I was growing up. And so I became very popular. I spoke over North America. I was working for a church um, at that point, volunteering at a church that knew my story and still allowed me to be in youth ministry anyways. And I have to say how rare that was because even if you were single and celibate and following Jesus, but admitted that you were gay, you were seen as potential pedophile. And people would often say, we want you in ministry, but not with our kids. Because, you know, Lovely. <laughs> we want to bring you in as the special speaker, but we don't want to give you access to our youth on a regular basis. Um, so I worked part, you know, I was working full-time speaking. I was volunteering probably another 20 hours on top of that with a youth group, mentoring them all through this speaking to them and telling them how much God loves them, even if they were gay. I counseled hundreds of teenagers from churches and told them that God loved them, but following Jesus meant these things. And the longer I worked at that, the more I realized that the message I was giving, like, even though I was doing all of the things right and telling them God loved them anyways, and our church was the most accepting of any church I knew, Almost every youth that I was working with who grew up in the church and realized they were gay was considering suicide and became self-harming, went through spirals of depression. And as I worked with multiple people through this, and I worked with my peers who had gone through this, what I noticed was eventually they would leave the church. And when they left the church and said, I am gay and that's who I am, Or they went to a more liberal church and said, I am gay and they accept me there. They stopped being suicidal and started actually becoming psychologically healthier. And that awareness of even with the best of intentions, what I was doing was still causing kids to want to kill themselves. And that when they left our environments, they actually became healthier just started eating at me and I would start talking to this about my peers and they and and confronting some of the research that had gone on in in this in this community and saying, hey, this this isn't good stuff And they were like, well, we know this thing we're teaching isn't true, but we it, it helps us get in where we need to so we're going to continue to. And I was like, I realized how political what we were doing was being used, and I said, I can't be part of this. And so, one day, I I was standing on a stage in front of, I think, a thousand teenagers at one of the largest conferences in in Canada, sharing my story, and and the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit me, and I said, I can't do this anymore. Wow. You had that moment in front of everyone? I, I, I walked off stage that day to a standing ovation. Oh. And my gut just fell out, and I and I just said to myself, "I, I can't do this." And around that time, um, this was like two thousand and eight. The economic downturn was hitting us. Our giving had decreased. I was, you know, I, I think I was about to be. But so things, you know, kind of happened together. Uh, we ran out of funding. I, I I got laid off, but I was happy to be laid off because I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, and, and, and so I walked away from things and, and at, in some ways, the height of my, my fame and my career and just said, I, I cannot be part of this, even if it costs me my job. Um, and it did like, after that, I was like, I'm going to go back to youth pastoring, but I interviewed at 24 churches where I made it to the third round or beyond our second round of interviews or beyond. And they always came to this point where he said, we love you. We think your ministry is really important. We don't want you to work with our kids.
2: Wow! wow. And how many years had you spent in youth ministry up to that point? Like 2000? Yeah,
0: like 15 at that point. Like, so you were seasoned. You know, I a resume you, that people yeah. would say, like, you you have an amazing resume. We, You are very well known. We really admire you. You have everything we say we're looking for, but we can't hire you. <laughs> um I also, I had been director of a camp for six or seven years at that point, a youth camp, which I had taken from, it was about to close and had built to real health. And I had mentored all of the leadership there. I had poured everything into my life. And the the um, a new pastor kind of took over leadership of the camp. And he came to me one day and said, Brian, we see you. We see what you're doing. We see that you're married. We see that you're living uh, a faithful life in front of Jesus and all of these things, but you've admitted that you're gay and we can't let you work at our camp anymore because it, it uh, you know, it, we have to avoid even the appearance of sin and having someone who admits to being gay um, working at our camp, people aren't going to want, feel safe sending their their youth there. So, even though we know you've done everything right, we, we have to ask you to step down. You can't be the director. You can't be a counselor. Um, you can work in the kitchen and be a dishwasher if you want. my
1: goodness. And I
0: might have told them some anatomically impossible places they could shove their dishes. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, what it boy. told me is I was doing everything they said that if you did these things, then you can be part of our community. And I realized that our churches lied when we said that because I was doing all of these things and yet I still had to constantly fight just to be allowed in, allowed the scraps under the table and I would never be fully accepted. And that's when I said, I have to walk away from this. And, uh, I, I went, I retrained, I became a child and youth worker. Um, I worked in a youth detention center for five years and, uh, and I thought I was all done with, with youth ministry. And then, uh, I uh, just, when I graduated, I was approached by a United Church that said, hey, we we think what you do is wonderful. Um, Come work with our kids. And I've been like, I won't work for you unless you're affirming. And they said, good, we won't hire you unless you're affirming. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I've been working in youth ministry for the last five years, building a safe place where LGBTQ2A plus youth could come out and be themselves and be told that God loves them. And it's been an amazing experience for me. The, the thing that really, the turning point for me was, number one, realizing that the church was lying when it said, if I hit these impossible goals, you know, if I just, just lived this way, then they would accept me. And having counseled hundreds of youth, I never saw one where those things were actually true for them. The other thing was I was sitting in church one day and the pastor was preaching from Matthew chapter 12 and it was the story of Jesus and the disciples going through the grain uh, the grainyard yard and the This disciples is the story. This grain, is the story you told. Grain, and that and changed. It. Yeah. yeah. And the Pharisees see this and go, "Don't you know that it's unlawful to pluck, you know, to pick grain on the Sabbath day?" And Jesus had a choice here. He could have said, that's not against the law. That's one of the extra rules that you added on top of the law. So, instead, Jesus doubles down and goes for an example that was clearly against the law. He's like, remember the time when David was, was running from Saul and was starved and the only food in the tabernacle was the showbread? The showbread, which was sacred, you know, people messing with stuff in the temple were killed all of the time by God. And the priests gave him the showbread to eat. And he said, now go learn what this means. I I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Wow. And then you will not accuse the innocent of doing wrong. And it was like I got hit in the face by a hammer. Because what I realized, what I had been doing was saying, I am willing to sacrifice the lives of these teenagers in order to follow the holiness code of Scripture, and that that sacrifice is what is pleasing to God and is proof of of my devotion to Him. And that was the moment that I realized that God had not asked for the sacrifice I was giving here. This is not what He wanted. And so, even if I couldn't explain all of the scriptural passages about that that said no to same-sex relationships in, in the New Testament. If what I was doing was causing teenagers to kill themselves, I had to stop doing it because I love Jesus. Because that's how Jesus, like that was Jesus's hermeneutics. He said, if what you are doing is causing harm to your neighbor, stop doing it, even if the loss is that that's what you're supposed to do in general. And when I started seeing that, it flipped everything in my life. And so I I changed my position and have been actively, this is the scary thing, I feel it's my duty now to speak as forcefully um, on the side I am now as I did in my previous position. But previously, where I had access to hundreds of times to go and speak, now no one lets me come and speak.
2: <laughs> well, that's where we have podcasts, and that's why I'm happy we're, we're running <laughs> with this, is because sometimes you can't get from your church information uh, that might go counter to the narrative, and you might have to Google or search or listen to stuff outside the box, and yeah. so, that, that's where we need we need to hear voices, and we need to have, you know, people who are in those circumstances need to have access to resources that go and, uh, and can change their opinion on things that could harm them greatly if they don't ever hear a different a different version. So I'm super happy you're telling your story
0: on this. And so talking about conversion therapy, because I, I mean, this is such a huge story and, and we could spend hours unpacking it. I, I want to share some of my experiences with conversion therapy. Um, I think I haven't watched um, the all of the movies on this just because it's triggering and it's not an entertaining time for me. What I'll say is movies always be careful of movies because they dramatize things. um, And they'll take the most dramatic examples of things um, and kind of put them into place. Now I know hundreds of people who have been through conversion therapies and I have heard horror stories and those horror stories are true. So everything in the movie, um, I know people who have had things like that happen to them for the most part. What I will also tell you is many people who go through conversion therapy, it's not as dramatic as that. Like, I never went to a residential school for conversion therapy. Um, the other thing was, I, no one for, my parents didn't force me to go to conversion therapy. They didn't know uh, that I was gay to send me there. I, I signed myself up and I did it eagerly and excited. Um, what people don't get was conversion therapy was actually better than the alternative for me. Like as damaging as it was, what I was living in growing up in the church and not having any space to talk about it was even worse. Right. Um. And so conversion therapy at least gave me a safe place to talk about what I was going through and know other people like me. And that's why it was so attractive. Um. So we can actually, I, you know there's a law that was just pass, is passing in Canada right now that bans conversion therapy, and I wholeheartedly support it, but understand that, that that doesn't solve the issue because the issue was actually the narratives that I learned growing up in the church that made me see myself as so horrible and worth hatred that I would go to conversion therapy in the first place. And if we just ban conversion therapy, then we just have these kids growing up with that level of self-hatred and having no place safe to go to. Understand that there were pro-gay groups around that I could, but I wouldn't go to them growing up because as an evangelical growing up, those were the enemy. Those were evil. Those were everything I'd been taught to never listen to because that was Satan trying to get into your heart. Um, So, I worry sometimes that in banning these things, we actually make it harder for those kids who need it most to find a safe place to, to talk to about things in their churches. Thank God there's the internet now. Like, growing up, we didn't have the internet. Um, so, for me to find other voices was a thousand times harder than it is now. Now our youth can go online and hear other voices, um, which is not something I had growing up, which changes the stakes a little bit.
2: Wow. I mean, that's quite a perspective, even I know like you, you support so it's 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 a little more complicated, and I appreciate the nuance you bring into it. Because I was reading up on on the different states and provinces that have banned it. I know in Canada, it's uh, mm-hmm. four provinces have banned it out of ten. The U.S. has the same statistics: twenty states out of fifty. It's like the same ratio. And there's obviously an effort in Canada to do it as a nationwide thing. But you know, I know certain cities have done it if their province hasn't, like mm-hmm. Vancouver in British Columbia has, even though the province hasn't. And in the states, I think uh, Philadelphia hasn't, but Pittsburgh and uh, sorry, Pennsylvania hasn't, but Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Right. Sometimes it's cities that are doing conversion therapy bans. And I saw what you had put up on Facebook, supporting Canada, taking that stance, but I appreciate you bringing in your concerns on the other side. I wouldn't have thought of, you know, like when I watched those movies in Victoria too, I think we were like, wow. And it, was, I think it's a helpful introduction to people who have no clue what conversion therapy is, maybe just mm-hmm. understanding it could cause deep harm, but I appreciate your voice having been in a different conversion therapy scenario yourself signing yourself into that and kind of presenting what is it like for kids where they personally really want to go into this and how do we reach or what can we do even apart from just laws like how do we have a bigger approach than just
0: change in my head it's just like get this passed everywhere (laughs) you know like it part of the complexity in this is even the laws that have passed they can say what they can say is psychologists cannot offer these services but they can't legislate religions. Um, and, and some of that is just if we want freedom of religion, we still, that means freedom of religions we really hate and or think are doing harmful things. Um, so most of the groups offering these therapies will say we are not a counseling service, we're a discipleship, we're a program, we're a church organization. And once they do that, the government can't regulate them. Now, what these laws do do is, when I was growing up, most of these organizations tried to pretend that they were legitimate psychological services. And they would have people with counseling degrees and say, see, this is a legitimate form of counseling that we're doing. Um, That is, I don't know of any organizations that can still do that because these laws are largely saying, No, if you know every legitimate psychological organization says this is harmful and you can't maintain membership in them if you are you know doing this kind of work but um christian you know christian groups can call it discipleship and they can't really stop you from doing it um and that's the hard thing
1: yeah um, I have a couple questions. First sure. of all, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I thought for telling your story, I thought it was really beautiful. Um, I'm glad that it has a happy ending. It seems like um we all kind of have that common thread of you see um church, home church kind of vibe. And um I'm really glad that you know it worked out for you. Um mm-hmm. If you could go back in time and meet a younger version of yourself, which version of yourself would you want most to speak to and what would you say to him?
0: It's really complicated to do this because I I read way too much science fiction and you're like, they they (laughs) always have, they go back in time and they're going to change this one thing for the best of intentions and then you know the 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 butterfly wings chaos theory that causes a tornado and it has okay, okay. unintended I, things, I, I, and you end up erasing your your parents yeah. meeting by accident, ignoring <laughs> yeah.
1: that that potential I, loophole. Part like part if- of
0: me wishes I could go back to grade six, me, and say, "You're okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. You you don't have to do this. Like like." even though you're gay, it's going to be all right. I, I mean, I wish I could go back to grade 10 me who was suicide. I wish I could go back to grade nine me who got into a really destructive abusive relationship because I thought I was worthless and, and had no value as a gay person. So what someone else did to me didn't matter. I wish I could go back to them and say, like, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I, I wish I could go back to Bible college me and say you have other options. Even though I love like everything about my job and working with youth, um I don't know. It's 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 hard at any point if I said something, how would that shift to other things? I, I don't know. But what I what I want, what's easier for me to say is, you know, I'm constantly meeting this generation's versions of me. Every day. Yeah. And all as I continue to tell them is you don't have to change for God to love you and that there are more voices than just the ones you know right now.
1: Wow. Um, the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims, as well as the United Nations and lots of other organizations, have said conversion therapy is, in fact, torture. Mm-hmm. Yet. Um, neither the U.S. or Canada has, as of this moment, instituted a nationwide ban on um, the practice. Um, as someone who's experienced conversion therapy first firsthand, why do you think that is and what's the disconnect there? And I know you've already spoken about this a little bit, but... <laughs>
2: Can I add in a few groups? Practices opposed by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association, American Psychological Association, yeah. Human Rights Campaign. Like, the, yeah, I just wanted to add what you were saying, Brian, before. Everyone, it's.
0: It, Every legitimate group <laughs> opposes it. Yes. And it's weird because sometimes when a legitimate group opposes it, a small splinter of them will break off and form another organization and make their name very similar and then put out things that make it sound like what they're doing is legitimate. So you always got to check the, when you hear a group says it's good, you have to check their credentials because they're probably not a legitimate organization. Um, I I will say this, I oppose any group, any therapy that someone is forced to do. Like therapy always has to come from consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're going into these situations where you know, people are being brought against their will. Um, there are uh, situations in other countries where they're forced by their government. Situations where parents are forcing kids to sending them away to residential schools and started changing them. I think this very much fits under torture, <laughs> um, and it absolutely has to be opposed and illegal in those situations. In situations where people freely choose to themselves to do things which are harmful to themselves this is, it's a different level of things. So paying attention to which which levels of things are going on when we're talking about conversion therapy is really important.
1: Brian, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story. Um, we're so glad you were able to talk with us about, you know, your experiences and um, we have so much more to say on this topic. So I think we're going to break this up into part one, part two, and we'll be talking about this next episode as well. Um, So I think that does it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't have one yet, head to DontRepeatThisPodcast.com to see a full list of all the apps we're available on. Share the episode with your friends and family. Rate and review us on iTunes. Extra points if you give us a five-star review. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm serious. If if you don't like us, you don't need to rate us. We're good with it. it, You can just scroll on by. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And you can follow us on social media. We're at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter. On behalf of my esteemed co-hosts, Gail and Nate, I'm Vicki, and this has been don't repeat this. So while it may or may not be a good idea to repeat this stuff at the dinner table, let's all work together to not repeat these historically bad decisions going forward. Thanks.